Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been bringing you big ideas in small, concentrated doses from some of the most creative thinkers alive. Uh, on the Think Again podcast, we step outside of our comfort zone, surprising myself and my guests with unexpected clips from our interview archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. I'm very happy to be sitting here today with T.C. Boyle, whose short stories and novels I've been enjoying for a couple decades now on a recommendation from my father. T.C. is actually the one author that my father and I really have in common. He's the author of 26 books of fiction, including The Tortilla Curtain, The Harder They Come, and World's End, which won the Penn Faulkner Award, and many, many more. His latest is The Terranauts, it's about an ill-fated, very expensive, and highly publicized experiment in which four men and four women try to live together for two years in a biodome in the Arizona desert. Welcome to Think Again, TC. Well, it's great to be here, Jason, but first I have to compliment your father on his literary taste and praise him for turning you on. Yes, this was many years ago. I think it was the tortilla curtain that he told me to read first, which was delightful and is, I'm sure, still, although I haven't read it in many years. Well, I haven't read it in many years either. <laughs> but I imagine it remains delightful. I imagine the words are essentially the same as yeah, they were yeah, the last as time. with you, I have a vague memory of it. <laughs> it's pretty good, and it's time. <laughs> so I wanted to start, you know, let me talk, let's talk a little bit about your work in general first, and then we'll get to Terranauts, which is great and fascinating. Um, you know, I've always thought about your work that it, compared to other literary writers, it, it, it's extremely diverse, extremely colorful, you know, surreal, sometimes satirical. You could call it cartoonish at moments, and sometimes more recently, I guess, you've been writing more, maybe more realistic novels, although I don't know if I'm getting the trajectory right. Um, but when you look back at your career thus far, like what do you see happening if like emerging or developing in a spiral as you've been, you know, as you've been growing as a writer all these years? The artists I like best are people who surprise us each time out. And I hope to be that kind of writer. Mm. I think my early stories were really wild and surreal for the most part. And then I developed the idea of, of using character, of, of developing drama as well as comedy. And the story collection I just turned in, The Relive Box and Other Stories, I wanted to return to some of the more bizarre stuff. So right. I'm always recycling and, and trying to do something different. I mean, in terms, you were talking about artists, your favorite artists being those that surprise us, and I, I totally agree, and I was recently at LACMA, the Museum of Art in, in Los Angeles, and reminded once again that Picasso, who, you know, oh, Picasso is so great. Like, for me, what is so incredible about him is just the incredible diversity across the body of work. And I feel like that same sense of fun and play. I mean, I, I'm not going to try to I compare you and Picasso. Very right now, flattered but. because <laughs> I, I think, in the same terms, that the diversity of the art and right. the, the kind of childlike play with things. By the way, the first time I ever got turned on by art, I was a kid and we went to MoMA and there is a Picasso sculpture of a baboon's face mm. and it uses a toy metal car 
that is then grafted into this with the grill of the car and so on. And I, it just as a kid, it just blew me away. I'm thinking, wow, how could anyone do that? Yeah, just that sense so of playful. like play and delight and doing, yeah, doing what's impossible and what you shouldn't be allowed to do, you know, because like the critics have a lock on, you know, this is what you're about or whatever. Oh, I like what you're saying now. Moving in um, new directions. You know. I think an artist can't have any truck with any of that. You just do what you're going to do and yeah, hope yeah. for the best. If you begin to calculate in your art what someone will or will not like, the uh, vague audience, you don't know who they are, or critics, who each have an opinion, of course, right. how could you possibly make work? You make work for yourself and then you deliver it to the world. Yeah. People often ask me, so who's your audience? And I say, anyone who knows how to read. So, I mean, <laughs> truly, I mean, it, it sounds like a joke, but in fact, it's true. Sure, no, that's, that's right. I, th I guess there's a, there would be arrogance or hubris in trying to think that you know exactly who you're writing for and exactly how they think and exactly what but is going to happen But again, I'm writing for me. I'm writing yeah, yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. This is how I feel about this world, which is, when you think about it, uh, the metaphysical questions of what we're doing here as an animal species on this planet and what were the beginnings and what are the endings of all of this and why we can articulate our feelings about it and yet have no answers. That science and religion are equally voodoo at, at, at some point in space because we have no answers. This obsesses me. Right. This is what I'm writing about. I'm writing about our environment and how we human animals are dealing with the essential questions of life, like what is the point? I mean, why brush your teeth? Why have a bank account? Why right. build a house if you're going to die anyway? You know, like I grew up here in Westchester County as a Catholic boy. Not anything heavy. Just once a week, my mother and sister and I would go to church, and God was there, and Santa Claus was there, and it was all wonderful. There was a purpose and right. meaning in life. About eleven or twelve. I said to my mother, you know, just studying earth science doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> to her credit, she said, well, you don't have to go anymore. So that was it. And, and not only was that it, I was furious with organized religion that these people should presume to tell us they have an answer when in fact there is no answer. Right. So then, at 17, I wound up in college and fell into the lap of the existentialist writers. And now I'm a wreck. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they don't, they don't exactly have an alternative structure that, you know, to reassure you about the world necessarily. It's more just uh, open-ended questions, right? The existentialist. Two things sustain me, and that is making art because it takes you out of your conscious mind and shuts down all this mechanistic world. And nature, as I was telling you before we went on the air here, right. um, you know, I spend a lot of time in the woods by myself, especially now that I'm a Californian. I go to the Sierra Nevada in okay. Sequoia Park. It's wild. There are bears. I have four times seen the mountain lion and once was as close to him as I am to you wow. right now. So this is very exciting. I go out there. I bring a book, I go out in the woods after work, I never see anyone, and I have a kind of elemental peace that, of course, is no longer available. Most, most people are living in refugee camps, you know, uh, with no resources and starving a third of the world. So I feel privileged to do that. Right. But it also is making me feel the pulse of some bigger thing, that, uh, that I am part of nature, that I'm just another creature. I mean, this is so important to me in terms of the despair that comes from contemplating the metaphysical questions. Is there any kind of shamanistic, or if that's not the right word, I don't know what is, but uh, element to writing for you in the sense of 
beginning a book, beginning a story, not necessarily knowing exactly where it's going to go and just that pleasure and that joy and that, I don't know, that sort of eerie otherworldliness of like, oh wow, this is what came out or this is where I ended up. You've expressed it beautifully. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I never know, even the shortest of stories, what it will be. Mm. It just begins and day by day it evolves and I'm following it. I might not think about it consciously all the time, right. but it's still there. And the thrill is that you're making something out of nothing and it does come together and you feel a tremendous surge of joy when it does. Yeah, I guess over time maybe your faith that it actually will come together probably grows more and more from the time when you start as a young writer to... We really hope so, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily work that <laughs> Not way. Always. Each time you finish a story, you know, you're completely bankrupt of ideas for the next <laughs> one, and you go through a period of despair, thinking that, well, you were overrated anyway, and now you're burned out, and you'll never do anything ever again. But right. <laughs> I, I'm just kind of obsessed with this. In fact, I've, in, in other interviews and in one essay I wrote, I've called it writing an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mm. And to some extent, that's true. And yet, thank God, because what are we going to do in life? You know, we talk about some of the underprivileged people in the country who are you know, smoking crack and doing dope and lying on the streets and hustling. Well, if you took, strictly took the ability to work away from me, that'd be a junkie in a month, you know? Right. Well, what are you going to do? You have to do something in life to combat the mystery or to address the mystery. Sure. That actually brings us nicely to the Terranauts. So this is one of these grand human experiments. I think a lot about, you know, like at the turn of the century, early early 1900s, and then again, late 1960s, these sort of utopian communities and grand ideas about what humanity could be. This was based on a real thing that happened, yes? They Indeed, yes, but now that you're mentioning it, uh, Jason, so I see that I've dealt with this kind of situation before, Drop City about the commune in Alaska, or uh, Franklin Wright and the women and his little group that he dominated. Uh, the book I wrote about Kinsey and sex, uh, Road to Wellville, John Harvey Kellogg. So right. this kind of obsesses me, the small group, the guru. So this is exactly the topic. This is a fictional rep representation of a second closure of the biosphere. So right. the biosphere experiment, 91 through 93, was this. Four men, four women were locked inside an artificial environment with 3,800 species of plants and animals right. to grow their own food and maintain their own atmosphere for two years, completely sealed. How would that go? One of them, of course, is a doctor in case of problems. So in the real telling, the real life, as much as we can say what real <laughs> life is, it was meant to go for 50 two-year closures for 100 years in this artificial environment. It all broke down six months into the second closure because the billionaire put up the money, got in a big fight with the creator who invented all this. So I have taken details from the actual world and I've posited a second closure. Again, they're going to have 50 of them with my own fictional characters. Right. Four men, four women, locked inside for two years. Is there any kind of meta commentary on these kinds of structures? Like, do you think that that this is foolish, these kinds of grand experiments? Do you think that, you know, I, or, I mean, I know as a writer, you have to actually enter into it and be present in it and not judge it while you're doing it, but, but is there a critique here as well of these kind of like human experiments? 
that's not for me to say. I think that's, <laughs> okay. that's for the reader to say. Okay. Uh, I don't go into such a project with any kind of political point in mind. Sure. I want it to evolve and I want it to be a seduction of the reader. Um, right. Just recently, within a month or so ago, NASA's closure experiment, one-year closure experiment came to an end in the Mauna Loa the crater. They had six astronauts, uh, men and women, enclosed to see if they could have a Mars colony. And they weren't enclosed in the way of the biosphere, or as I call it, the ecosphere too. They were uh, allowed to go outside, but only if they wore spacesuits. So again, the experiment was to find out what it would be like to have a Mars colony. Did they have agriculture and stuff in there the way they do in your <laughs> I don't think so, no. no. No, no, it wasn't as grand as, you know, creating a self-replicating atmosphere, which is what you would have to do. Right. Anyway, Elizabeth Colbert, the environmental writer, wrote a piece in The New Yorker when they first went in there a year ago, whenever it was. And her question was, in terms of evolution, it's so astonishingly difficult, maybe impossible, to create a new ecosphere. We mm -hmm. already live in one. Right. Let's do a little bit of a better job with this one. Yeah, because there are so many potential unintended consequences, right? That that comes into play in the Terranauts as well. Yes, it's of course. Just you, you have no idea what certain species might I've do. I've taken details from the original, of course, and, in, and included them in this because I'm continuing into a second closure. They included three species of cockroach purposely because these are uh, detritophores. They break down all the, the dirt and they're important in, in an ecosystem. But it took them a long while to build this. And right. while it was open, invasives came in, including the cockroach that was in your shower this morning. And that <laughs> one took over, you know? Right. So yeah, of course, there are unintended consequences. Right, right. There's one other aspect I want to get at with this real quick. The people in the experiment, as the author, I don't think you're allowed to sort of like or not like them, right? You kind of have to be them. But I found some of them pretty unlikable, I have to say. Like, I just found that in general, they were very, like, competitive. I mean, this was the nature of the project, right? You had to compete right. to get in Right, this is what got me going on the first chapter, of course, is the idea, the reader doesn't quite know yet what's going on, but the idea that they are competing, as the astronauts did, to be the famous one who is going to be included. Right. And it's a cult. It's, again, I'm so interested in cults. How is it going to work out? So, of course, right. you're getting, by the way, this is the first time I've done three I narrators. And you get them consecutively throughout the book. Uh, the first is Dawn Chapman, who is probably the most attractive of these. And she is just a hardcore cultist who wants to be in here and believes in it 100%. Then you get Ramsey Ruththorpe, who is uh, their information officer, and uh, is a little more cynical, but also equally committed, maybe even more committed. Right. And then the third is uh, Linda Ryu, who uh, was excluded. They chose eight from 16, but right. given the promise that she would be in in the next closure. They, yeah, they la that's the cultic, uh, I mean, first of all, there's a charismatic leadership that they are all kind of toadying up to. But there's also just a lack of, I mean, even, even the Ramsey, as you say, is a little more cynical. There's a lack of any irony in some ways in them about the project. You know, Isn't that the way of cultists? <laughs> right. You know, uh, whether they're religious cultists or uh, environmental cultists, whatever they are, they are going to preach to you and they're going to tell you the way it is. Uh, any fundamentalist religion, they must preach to us and be absolutely rigid because if a shred of doubt enters, they wind up like me. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we wouldn't want that, no. would we? Okay. No. All right. So, um, TC, I think this brings us to the second part of the program where we are going to see what unexpected clips the producers have chosen for us today. They're like gods, aren't they? These, they are, these this unnamed is, producers. It's like, it's like a Greek play. Big Think is a kind of a cult in a way I in, like in, in, in which these are the, the triumphs. Will they ever reveal themselves, these gods? Um, their these names, producer gods? Their or? names are Jonathan Fowler, Aaron Lehman, and Elizabeth Rod. Oh, they wonderful. have just revealed themselves. Okay, yeah. so I guess after this, the, the four of us will go out and hammer flaming shots of 151 rum. I, I certainly hope so. Okay, good. <laughs> so this first one is called What Your Reaction to Something Gross Says About Your Brain with Kathleen McAuliffe, who is a science writer. A little known fact is that conservatives are more disgust sensitive. There's a huge variation across populations in how disgust sensitive people are. There's actually standardized scales that measure, for example, the questionnaire you fill out and will ask you questions about like how revolted you would be if you stepped on dog poop or if you saw a cockroach on pizza or a dirty toilet. And as a result of filling out these questionnaires, they've been able to look to see if there's parallels between how disgust-sensitive someone is and how conservative they are. And indeed, there is a correlation. And um, probably the reason for that is because the conservatives, if you kind of really break down their belief systems, they tend to have conservative sexual values. They also tend to be more opposed to immigration. and foreigners are a leading source, at least in centuries past, foreigners were a leading source of exotic germs for which we had no natural defenses. So that's the leading theory as to why you see this association. But in general, even in large survey studies, they've shown this link between germophobia and xenophobia. I'm always skeptical of these kind of large-scale studies like this. What they rely on is that kind of like, is numbers, basically. Like if 2,000 people are doing this, then this is a trend and therefore this is the case. But I can think of at least five squeamish people I personally know who are extremely progressive politically and in no way like afraid of foreigners or whatever. What do you think about that? I agree with you, Jason, that, of course, such a study is always suspect because people have to tell you how they feel, and they might lie. You know, I wrote uh, The Inner Circle about uh, Kinsey, the sex researcher, and he perfected a method of sort of a double-blind thing where you could tell if they were lying and, and so on. But still, it's not science. It's not fact. Right. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I like this because you can see that Eventually, there will only be conservatives on Earth because the rest of us will die off from these stinking microbes. <laughs> yeah, progressives will remain, or liberals will remain too open to, to the things that will kill us. Exactly. Yeah, okay, interesting. Um, I'll give you another uh, point on this. Uh, I sort of revel in what is disgusting in my work, of course. Because inside of me, deep inside, is the 12-year-old brain. Mm. I did a, a show yesterday in which I talked about the work of Bernd Heinrich, the okay. ecologist and beautiful writer about nature, informative, amazing writer. 
And what's great about him is he does things like, uh, he was always curious about how many seeds could fit inside a chipmunk's cheek. So he found okay. a roadkill and he <laughs> stuffed in uh, 60 sunflower seeds. Right. Yeah, that's good to know. And he tastes things. He tastes things in nature. He tastes bugs to see what they taste like. This is, in some senses, could make conservatives squeamish. But on the other hand, it could make liberals squeamish too. Were you that kind of kid? Were you getting into everything, trying to go into the things that others might run away from? I was sort of like Huckleberry Finn as a kid. Uh, I grew up in Westchester in a housing development with woods mm -hmm. out back, which I think where I got my love of nature. And uh, I mean, look at me now. I was a completely hyperactive kid. We didn't have shrinks and diagnoses and ADHD and all of this crap. Right. What we had was a back door. <laughs> and yeah. my mother was sure that I was outside winter and summer, you know, to get this energy out. So, yeah, I'd spent a lot of time roaming the woods in a, in a curious way. And again, as we said earlier, I still do uh, need to do that. Yeah, my parents were both physicians, and so they had been in emergency rooms. They had seen, you know, plenty of gross things. And so, yeah, in our, in our world, it was just like squeamishness was not an option. It was just sort of like, what? So is it going to kill you? If it's not going to kill you, go look at it. You my know, son has just begun medical school, and we're wonderful parents. He just began in July. <laughs> and so as wonderful parents, we've already gotten him his own cadaver for his birthday. We're, we haven't told him yet, so he can practice. Awesome. Where, how did you manage to do that? <laughs> well, we just dug one up. Okay, great, 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 great. Um, no, cadavers are us. It's a, it, it's a oh, chain. They now, yeah, 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 okay. No, I was thinking that maybe some Silicon Valley uh, startup had scaled that at this point, and you could just kind of order a cadaver from an app, maybe. Your parents went through this. <laughs> the mention of the emergency room and so on, um, I could never do anything like this, and I hope my son is able to. Um, I've made a point in my life of keeping all of my blood inside me at all times. That's where I like it to be, <laughs> you know? And I haven't had any, uh, thank God, I haven't had any traumas or had to see other people having a trauma. I don't know if I could handle that. I am, you know, here I am a wise guy and cracking jokes and everything. But right. I Medically, maybe a bit sensitive. squeamish. No, not, not, not. I'm sensitive in ways that I presume a lot of people are of other people's feelings and hurts and so on. Sure. And so I certainly could not have been in that profession. I don't think I could have either. I mean, especially, like, you imagine the people that deal with pediatric oncology. Have you My written? other son's okay. wife. Uh, he is a pediatric oncology nurse and stays on the ward all night with these kids who are going to die, all of them. And it is particularly horrific. The, she showed me some pictures of kids. So here you are, you're a parent, you've got a beautiful little three-year-old kid you love more than anything in the world, and the kid is going to die of cancer. Worse, sometimes the steroids and drugs they're giving the kids make their facial bones mutate in some way or move around or enlarge so that they have a mask, like a horror uh, film of these poor little kids. I mean, what is the universe doing to them, you know? And so my daughter-in-law has the great heart to be there and I've asked her about it and she says, well, they need me. Isn't I, that great? I, I mean, I think I, I, you know, I can't imagine having the ability to choose to work in that environment in the first place, but having done so, 
obviously like faced with that need every day and and the being in the position of being the only one that can potentially make their lives better for as long as they're there i told her this that's what you'd have i had to do. read in the paper some years ago of a woman who had been an oncologist for like 25 30 years and she was just so depressed so she got a little more training and went into obstetrics Right. The other end of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, here's your baby. It, it's not rarely does something go wrong, but as the oncologist, you know, she knows that most of the people whom she has an attachment for, right, are going someplace else. Right, 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 right. Indeed. Well, I don't know. I'm really out of pediatric oncology. I'm not sure how we can, you know. I think <laughs> I, uh, let's leave it at obstetrics and then see what the next one has for us. Eh? Okay, great. All right. So the next video is. Sean Willentz, he's a historian. Uh, I haven't seen this video, but he was on this podcast. He's from Princeton. Um, he's also Bob Dylan's biographer. He's like the official biographer. Wow, this of guy Bob is multi talented. Interested dude. Interesting dude. And this is on the U.S. two party political system. The two party system is inevitable. The framers designed a constitution that they thought would be without political parties. They didn't like them. And yet, they designed a system in which parties very quickly arose and were never going to go away. And the reason is simple, that in a country as large, as diverse, with so many clashing interests as the United States, it's going to become necessary to find a focus for your um, political actions. Parties have become that focus. They very quickly became that focus. Now, the question is, why don't we have a multi-party system? Why, don't, why aren't we more like Italy, say, or even France, or the European parliamentary system? Well, that's the answer, is that we're not a parliamentary system. Because we have the system that we do, and because it's based on the idea of first past the post, in other words, the person who gets the most amount of votes will win the election. You're not going to have proportional representation. If you get 10% of the votes, you're not going to get 10% of the power, you're going to get nothing. On that account, then, the pressure is very, very strong for there to be, eventually, a two-party system. Third parties can come in, but, and they can have a tremendous amount of influence in shaping you know, the major parties. But as a great historian once said, third parties are like bees. They sting, and then they die. So I think that two parties, it's not so much that I have some metaphysical or ontological love for two parties as a thing. It's rather that's the way the American constitutional system works. Now, if you change the constitutional system, of course, that will change as well. But it's embedded in the way that our government is, was, was set up in 1787-88, and it continues that way to this day. I like two-party system uh, for the reasons just expressed by your previous speaker. And yet, my fear in this election from the beginning has been that we will, are in great danger of being a one-party system because the Republicans are so bankrupt in who they put forward. I mean, Mitt Romney, who would vote for Mitt Romney unless you personally were one of uh, a coterie of billionaires <laughs> who wanted to screw the system over? Right. And now we have this completely inappropriate clown up there polishing his own image for, uh, for his future career as a TV huckster. I mean, is this the best the party can do? I mean, it's an insult to the system, and I'm afraid that the Republicans are on the run, and eventually we'll just have one party. 
I mean, this guy, Sean Willens, actually, when he was here, I was talking to him and he was saying that, you know, this is what we're witnessing is the death of the Republican Party, that it's basically going, you know, and I guess Phoenix-like it must somehow rise from the ashes or something else must. <laughs> it's not <laughs> happening now, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Maybe these are the death throes and uh, maybe the party will change and maybe it will be more representative of the mass of Americans rather than of just special interests. Let's find out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, apparently there's an astonishing number of Americans who find Donald Trump's message resonating with them. I mean, this there's also this perhaps reckless impulse to just, you know, tear the whole thing down, see what he does, you know, that some people are motivated by that, you know. Who knows what he'll do, but it can't be worse than what the, what we've got, you know. Furthermore, my dear fellow, <laughs> um, I kind of resent the fact that we have to talk about this charlatan. No, that's right. That's right. And like, and you have to, well, and that's the thing, I mean, and, and that, that a lot of us are coming back to, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of vexing to have to deal with him. On the other hand, if a lot of Americans, I guess we can simply say that mostly this is the politics of fear and most of the people who are voting him, for him are voting out of the kinds of fears that he's stirring up. But it feels a little unsatisfying to have to dismiss some fairly large portion of the country in that way, you know? I am grateful <laughs> to be an American. I love yeah, yeah. this country that has allowed me to say and do anything I want and to live in a democracy and to make my living as an artist because that is who I am and how I feel. Don't forget, at least a third of the world is just run by gangs. Right. Gangs take over and run a country and tell you what to do, like, like Trump's buddy Putin, for instance. <laughs> right. He's just a gangster. So we are privileged to be sitting here talking about it. Maybe the two of us are surprised at what's happening and a little bit bored by it and maybe a little resentful of this particular candidate. But nonetheless, the system works and it's allowed us to be free and to be here talking about it. Yeah, and in a, in a way, I think a lot of the people who are voting for Trump, from what I've heard them saying, you know, they actually believe that those freedoms are being taken away from them. I think it's a lot of primarily white people getting a little disturbed about the way that the discourse is shifting in the country and feeling... And the electorate <laughs> is shifting also. Yeah. I mean, we are a country of immigrants, as I you know, talk about in, in the Tortilla Curtain. Right. And this is nature. This is the way nature operates. We're an animal species. We're going to go where the resources are. People in power can't stop that. They can't stop it whether they like it or not. Yeah, as you said. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So let's, let's agree. Let's agree. Let's be citizens of America. Yeah, well, as you said, like party of no. I mean, in a way, I think that's it. Like, and going back to the previous video about squeamishness and sort of refusal of what's foreign, I mean, there is this migration of peoples across the world that we're seeing and this is the hand coming up to resist it you know and saying keep it the way it is as an environmentalist as you may know i've addressed this in public for god quarter century now and uh, when i published the friend of the earth in the year 2000 i trotted around the world with it and gave a little performance and talked to people and so on and the situation environmentally seems so utterly hopeless i mean i don't want to depress people and make them think why bother to right. recycle or whatever because it all sucks anyway right, right. it doesn't matter I mean it's good that we do that when I was a kid we had no notion of this so and, and, and air pollution where we you know we are trying to get things together at least here in the US and what happens in the US generally spreads as a trend throughout the world all that is very good right 
You, so you're saying so, but, 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 <laughs> but I know there's a but in but, there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> problems overpopulation of seven, over seven billion people in the Earth. So Mars. Yeah, well, uh, there's some complications with Mars. <laughs> a few complications, but again, back to the Terranauts. That's why I'm writing about that. Is right, this right. possible? Probably not, but let's hope so. Anyway, I have said to the people. If you really want to solve the problem, here is the solution. And no cheating. Everyone on Earth must agree from this moment on to abstain from sexual relations for 100 years, problem solved. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think that that's probably, that idea is doomed <laughs> from the outset. I mean, even getting them to agree to birth control, I think, is doomed, you know, uh, across the board. I One of the it. most evil things President Bush ever did within weeks of coming into office was to cut the amount of money that we use, this piddling amount of money, to distribute birth control in the third world. Because it's immoral, I suppose, uh, for his far-right evangelical you know, constituency. Yeah. But how stupid. It's you know, so stupid. How short-sighted. And this, of course, is the president who also, for 10 years as a shill of the oil companies, prevented the science on global warming from moving forward. We could have been 10 years in advance of trying to control it. Not that I'm criticizing. No, I'm just no. pointing no, it's, out. It's just interesting. That we've had some short-sighted leaders in that other party we were talking about earlier. Well, it's just interesting that, like, you know, the life is hard enough. Like, it's hard enough to be a human being and to try to make sense of the world and our place in it without these alternative narratives that we seem to come up with, like it's immoral to use birth control which just create very strange veerings off and, and you know, and, and conflicts where conflicts should Well, this goes back exist. also to, uh, you know, to take the other side for a moment of, of what the right wing feels is there's too much government. Well, maybe so. Don't forget, the government is not our mommy and daddy. And for instance, in California, in this election, we will finally pass the marijuana law so that marijuana will be totally legal in every possible way. The same thing had happened after prohibition with booze. I've been talking about this again for a quarter century. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. You yeah, tax so it the way you tax booze. You know, look, we've destabilized Mexico, Afghanistan. We've created drug lords, murders, all of this. When we could simply sell, I would sell every drug, heroin, anything you want at Long's Drug Store or CVS Pharmacy. Yes, okay, so... Age limits, yeah, probably, no. Anybody over two. <laughs> no, 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 no. Age limits as there yeah, is with yeah, booze yeah, and yeah, cigarettes yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. But then you have the revenue. There is no more black market. Who's going to go in an alley and buy a drug where you don't know how it's cut or what's going to happen to you? When you can go and get a pharmaceutical grade, whatever it is. Of course, some people yeah. will abuse it. So after this, if we wanted, we could go get a gallon of gin, sit on uh, the corner of 42nd Street and drink till we puke. Right. We might, but probably we won't. You know, but the Sadly. choice is ours. We could, yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, and, and then that revenue, all of that revenue could go to education or something so that people don't elect people like Donald Trump in the future. <laughs> yes, and you know, uh, the income tax is incredibly corrupt and uh, Byzantine system. If I were in charge, but I'd have to seize power, of course, because yes. I don't want any cooperation with anybody. I would think more in terms of eliminating the entire structure of it, all the accountants, all the lobbyists, everybody, no more IRS. I would just do a, a VAT on every purchase. We need 
12% this year, okay, it'll be a 12% VAT. You don't want to buy a Cadillac, don't buy a Cadillac, you know? Uh, it would get all the underground economy to have to pay tax. Right. The billionaires, of course, who pay nothing and all the drug lords and everybody else, everybody would actually pay. And I suppose then the coffers would fill rather quickly. I like your idea. I don't support the idea of dictatorships, but it doesn't sound like it would be too terrible if you were to seize power. I, again, I talked about this many years, <laughs> many years ago, and it's entirely my fault because I got distracted doing <laughs> other things and never did it. And besides which, I'm not that interested in politics, despite what we've just been saying <laughs> now. I'm more interested in dreaming and making art and being out in the woods by myself, which is the greatest privilege. You know, during the great industrial age of America, Conspicuous consumption was the rule of the day. The rich people would have the, the car and the mansion and so on. Today, more than anything, wealth is displayed in this country by having your own space, your own property, because that is what is mm. most at premium. Mm. So I feel privileged to be able to go to the national parks Interesting. and be out there by myself alone. Many people don't really get it because they haven't had an experience like that. But uh, thank God that those spaces are available to us as citizens to go to. I completely agree with you. I mean, for one, well, there are a couple interesting things here. One is that, you know, it seems like uh, apparently statistically the mass of humanity is moving into cities. We're clustering into cities. So while on the one hand, space may represent wealth, we're cramming ourselves into smaller and smaller, tighter and tighter spaces. But where the wealthiest can have a penthouse or whatever. Of course, but according to the new urbanists, this is a better way than the old model of the suburbs going farther and farther out. So you ideally have a city in which every one can work. It cuts down on transportation costs for a beginner, and then, but you must have green space around right, it. Right, right. I mean, the idea of Central Park, the genius of that, the genius of Central Park. You I, know? I was just marveling the other day at the fact that it has someone hasn't managed to like chip away at the margins of that park. I, I don't know what year Olmsted built that, 18-something, yeah. but, but you know, the value of that real estate and the fact that nobody, it's inviolable somehow, it must be in the constitution of New York, or I don't know. Like. There's some guy now, uh, I think he's running for president of the U.S. His plan was to build out off of Manhattan, to build towers out in the river. Uh, enough already. You I mean, know. we've only just reclaimed that river from Robert Moses, who built highways all around the city, and thus made the river and the water Not completely invisible. Not to mention the PCBs that are in the mud there, right? Traveling down from uh, Albany and so on, uh, many years ago. When They've been cleaning it, yeah. It's they're cleaning better. it, but there's a, there's always been a debate as to whether to just leave it in the mud or to stir up the mud and then have all of these molecules up into the water. So I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. But of course, writing about the environment all the time. I'm all for trying to bring back the species and preserve places for them. It just makes for a richer, better, and more natural life for all of us. I completely agree, and this is making me want to go get out into the woods again very soon. So my son, on the other hand, who may well listen to this and is eight years old, probably never wants to go into the woods again because he and his grandmother got lost there for seven hours once. So I don't. What would you say, T.C. Boyle, to my son to make him want to go back into the woods? <laughs> Being lost is great. What is his name? Emre. Emre, I've got to tell you, 
it's great to be lost in the woods. You should encourage yourself to be lost in the woods as much as possible and grow up like Huckleberry Finn, but go to school. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, Emre, we'll teach you how to survive in there next time so, uh, so it won't be quite so yeah, scary. Yeah, you bring lots of a bag of Snickers bars. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> T.C. Boyle, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Okay, and that's it for another episode of Think Again. This has been a very intense couple weeks in America. I don't presume to tell anybody else how they ought to process what's going on, whatever their political beliefs or values might be. But I will share with you very briefly kind of where I'm at, which is that I think it is more important than ever that on the one hand, we figure out how to talk and listen to each other. And on the other hand, that we remain clear and awake and committed to core values so that if there are things happening in this country that might be unacceptable to you, you speak unequivocally about it. It's a tricky, tricky situation to inhabit but everyone's got to kind of figure out where that line is for themselves. Anyway, take care of yourselves, take care of your friends and your family, and uh, I'll be back next week with another complicated conversation. See you then. <laughs>